Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you're enjoying the show, if you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app, as it helps other folks find it, that would be really helpful. Our guest today is Ethan Austin, Managing Director of Techstars Western Union Accelerator. Techstars Western Union Accelerator is a premier program for global startups shaping the future of money movement. Companies participating in the program gain direct access to the world's best fintech execs, founders, and investors covering everything from customer development, global go-to market strategy, access to capital, and business development opportunities. You can currently apply now to be part of their summer cohort. Details are in the show notes. The application deadline is April 5th, 2020. So apply away. Previously, Ethan co-founded GiveForward, the world's first medical crowdfunding platform, which was acquired by GoFundMe. Ethan also co-founded DealGooder, an e-commerce site where proceeds benefited local nonprofits and schools. It was really fun chatting with Ethan. So without further ado, here he is. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Tell me a little bit. What attracted you? You went to law school and then you became an entrepreneur. And so what attracted you to entrepreneurship after law school? Probably being shitty at law school is what attracted me to it, I'd say. You know, if I'm being perfectly honest, I don't think uh, I was probably looking to be an entrepreneur my whole life like some people are. Uh, I, I mostly, I mean, the reality is I got punched in the face with a problem and I didn't know what to do and didn't know how to solve it and just thought that, uh, it seemed like a solvable problem. It wasn't something I was thinking of doing ahead of time, but, um, I didn't see anyone else solving it. So I decided to jump in and try it. You know, just looking at like the two companies that you started deal gooder and give forward, it seems like with both, with both these startups, you, you really had, you were very mission driven. Is that something that you think about in terms of being impact and mission dri- driven when you start a company? I mean, for me, yeah, I'd say there's some, I mean, going back to what I was saying before, like there's some people who are just natural born entrepreneurs who are going to solve problems. You know, you could give them any problem and they turn it into a great company. And for me, I wasn't like that. I, I wasn't uh, this person who just wanted to build big companies. I was wanting to solve a problem. So for me, I think these things are so hard to do. If you're in a startup, I mean, you're just spending so much time pounding your head against the wall. It, it's an it's a fundamentally irrational decision to to join a startup or to start a company, given that there's so many alternative things you could be doing that uh, would probably make you less stressed and probably have a fatter bank account. So I think um, unless you're doing something you're passionate about, you're probably going to give up too early. So for me, it's hard to, it'd be hard to think of something or doing something ever um, that you didn't feel really strongly about and feel like you're, you're making some type of impact in the world. I completely agree. So, so take me a little bit after law school, what was the problem that you kept running into that you wanted to solve? I was in law school and um, I, had a, I had a buddy who convinced me to train for a marathon, which you know, I had never run more than five miles and, and I don't know why I decided to do this, but he, he thought it would be a good idea. So I said, I'd do it. And, um, my dad had, had died of cancer when I was a kid. So I figured if I was going to do anything as dumb as train for a marathon, that I might as well run for a good cause. And, um, with the marathon, you could choose one of 20 official charity partners. And so I chose to work with a children's cancer organization and they gave me uh, an online fundraising page to raise money. And I started, I started getting donations from friends and family and I hit my goal pretty quickly. And I raised the goal again and, um, I tried to hit $5,000 and 
And this was before Facebook. So you're just kind of sharing it over email. This is 2006, 2007. I started to get creative. I had a banana costume in my closet from Halloween. And I started to promise my friends and family that I'd run the marathon, the banana costume, if I hit the goal. And then I started running up and down the streets of DC in the banana costume, handing out flyers to people. And, and sooner or later, within a couple of weeks, people from across the country were, were donating, uh, which was pretty wild to see like some idiot in a banana costume uh, is generating all these people to, to donate from all across the, the country. And, um, and I think it was because of the tool that they gave me, they gave me this online fundraising page back then we called it peer to peer fundraising. And it was just such an amazing tool that I thought to myself, this is incredible. If, if me like this idiot in a banana costume can generate, you know, this much in donations, what about people who care about other things, right? Like I would have raised money for colon cancer, but that wasn't an option for me because I could choose only from the top 20 charity partners. What about people who care about the environment or human trafficking or battered women's shelters or whatever it might be? Everyone has a cause they care about. Everyone should have a tool like the tool I had to raise money. So that was, that was kind of my initial thought. Um, and I wasn't going to do it. You know, I, I told a few friends about it, but you know, this is 2006, the word crowdfunding doesn't exist yet. Or, uh, so it, it's not a thing really. And, um, eventually I, I linked up, uh, with my co-founder who was, had a similar idea that she was inspired after hurricane Katrina to do something like this. And, and we got connected and, um, instantly clicked because no one, you know, you're, you're telling this idea to a bunch of people and, you just mostly get a bunch of eye rolls and so are just kind of people nodding their head with a, a glazed look on their eyes, just being like, okay, cool. And so once I, once I met her and got introduced to her um, and she had had the guts to do it and I was kind of just sitting on the idea, she convinced me to, to move out to Chicago. So I moved out with a, a single little suitcase and, and we launched a company uh, later that year. Wow. That's really inspiring. So I guess what were, what were, I guess, some of the learnings from that? Because you like, I had, for example, like Jay Kapoor on the show, um, who I don't think actually is an entrepreneur, but in his diligence process, you know, he says that he likes entrepreneurs that are focusing on the, that are kind of obsessive about the problem, which it really seems like you were right. Um, rather than their own solution. Do you have any thoughts in terms of like how to think about the differences between approaching like a problem rather than their own solution? We, we pivoted. Um, before the word pivot existed, I think, right? Was, um, and we didn't know what we were doing, but we knew what we were doing in our first year. In our first year, I think we generated maybe $6,000 in revenue. Clearly, this wasn't working. Uh, and we were trying to focus mostly on nonprofits. Um, and that was kind of my direction. I was kind of trying to push. And my co-founder was really thinking about doing things more broadly. And we launched the same year as Indiegogo. So we're, she was thinking people should be able to raise money for anything. And, and it kind of turns out that we were both wrong a little bit. My focus was too narrow, hers was too broad, and neither of us were focusing on the right vertical. As it turned out, one of the categories um, that we allowed people to raise money for was, was medical expenses for their loved ones. And, and that's where we started to see like this tremendous need. And we started to move the product towards that. It took us a year. Neither of us... Uh, we're technical or engineers. And so we, we were outsourcing the development of our site at the time. So we pivoted and even like six months later, seven months later, I think it still said raise money for anything on the website, even though we had kind of made a more narrow focus towards medical expenses. So um, in, in that case, I think we just really listened to our customers. We, we were 
we, we kind of looked at the, the data we saw in Google Analytics that was both telling us the customers uh, who were raising money for uh, medical expenses were raising far more than those who were raising money for anything else. And then, and then we are also getting what we call hugs. Uh, whereas the nonprofit partners we were trying to work with would mostly tell us our, our product was janky and terrible and they hated us. The, the people raising money for medical expenses were saying things like, we don't know what we would have done without you. Like you saved my brother's life. Like we had people coming in from other places saying, hey, I live in Wisconsin, you're in Chicago. If I'm ever in town, can I just come by your office to give you a hug? And, and after a while, we didn't get a ton of those, right? Because we were, I told you, $6,000 in revenue that first year. But you get enough of those little signals from people that's just like, why are we working over here with these nonprofits who hate us when there's a group of people over here who love us? Um, and then when we started to actually look at the problem and how big that problem was and understand the scope of how broken our healthcare system was, it, it made total sense to move in that direction. Wow, that's that's really inspiring. I, I, I wanted to also touch on, because you mentioned a really good point about listening to your customers. And it seems like you had some that was kind of coming, you said not a lot, but you, but you had some that, that, that were coming inbound that, you know, was amazing and, and, you know, probably eye-opening for you in terms of how, uh, where to pivot just on the business end, as well as also probably on the, on, on the emotional end uh, very much as well. Where do you, what do you think in terms of like customer outreach, uh, going the other way, what are some tools or the you know, entrepreneurs should be doing at the very early stages to really try to evaluate if what if if their proposed solution is actually solving the problem at hand? Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know what the best tools are, you know, per se, but I, I think that there's no you, you can't talk to your customers enough. Um, I, I think that they're the ones that that understand what the problems are, and we think we know what the problems are. We think we know what the solutions are, but the, the customers always end up telling you what the actual problems are and what they need solved. Um, so I encourage all of our companies and tech stars to, you know, to reach out to as many customers as they can um, and, and really focus on that before doing really just about anything else so that you're, if you're going to spend all of your time building something, you should be aiming, aiming in the right direction and really focusing on the right thing. So yeah, I mean, reaching out and talking to them as much as possible. I completely agree. Uh, so I'm glad you brought up Techstars. You know, I know you went through Techstars in 2010. You say it changed your life. So how, how did it change your life? And tell me a little bit about your experience. Yeah. So, so we launched this idea in 2008. And as I mentioned before, was when we launched this, it was there was no idea of crowdfunding. It wasn't a thing. It wasn't a term that we it was in our vernacular at the time. We called it peer-to-peer -peer fundraising. Uh, us and Indiegogo launched the same year, and you know the next year Kickstarter launched, and the year after that GoFundMe launched. But at the time, it was it was this really kind of really small space, and no one really believed in what we were doing. So the first two years of our of our business, we pitched it to a handful of of investors and venture capitalists and basically got laughed out of the room for, for two years. And it was just by chance, honestly, that um, 2010 Techstar Chicago was launching and it was called Accelerate Labs back then. It became Techstar Chicago a couple years later. And they launched and it was just random chance. The guy who was running it at the time was the founder of OkCupid. And he had had an experience where one of his wife's coworkers needed a, a medical crowdfunding page and those didn't exist yet. And so no one knew anyone who could build one. And so it was three degrees away and they're like, Hey, can, 
can Sam build this? He's, he's a tech guy. They asked him to put like a blog together with a PayPal button. And it was only because of that random thing that happened in his life. And then we came along creating automated versions of what they expected him to build that we got into the program. And, and it was just by chance and it ended up changing our life in so many ways. So I think Techstars does a lot, you know, a lot of things. So I'll give you just a few examples. One is um, advice, right? Like mentorship. It's a mentorship driven program with 10,000 mentors around the world who help give you advice. Two is access, right? So like everyone, you know, there's only so much advice you can get from people. One of the great things that Techstars does is give people access. So I think the tech world is really an insider's club um, and, and not, not any different than anything else in this world, but it's an insider's club. And so if you're on the outside looking in, it's hard. And if you're on the inside, it's still hard, but slightly easier. And, and one of the things that we help do is move people from the outside track a little closer to that inside track through introductions, whether that's to investors or to partners or to sales or to whoever that might be. Um, so just a couple quick examples there. When, when, when we first got into Techstars, we had a mentor who took us under his wing and he was one of the people that, that helped create the browser with Mark Andreessen and he built a company uh, called Spyglass Technologies and built this product called Mosaic and it ended up becoming Internet Explorer and you know, took his company public for you know, probably billions of dollars. And we were you know, 27, 28 at the time, knew no one in tech, knew no one, nothing about tech. And he took us under his wing and helped us out. Um, he helped us think through our product, right? So on that mentorship side, helped us think through the product and which direction we should go in and helped us really narrow our focus and, and select to focus really on medical crowdfunding rather than everything. And that ended up being the biggest space in all of crowdfunding. So GoFundMe, which ended up winning the space, that ended up being more than 50, 60% of their revenue just from that one category. So he helped us think through that decision, which was absolutely the right decision, helped us kind of pioneer that space of medical crowdfunding. And so that was one thing. Um, you know, when we raised our, our, at an angel round at the time, it's funny to think about it. We raised an angel round $500,000. Back then, I think it was a $1.8 million pre. Right, just to just to think of how different things are today. But he helped us raise, you know, like he helped us get the first forty percent done just from his friends. And because of that, we were able to to raise funds from like amazing angel investors. We had the now governor of Illinois as an angel investor. We had David Cohen, the founder of TechStars, as an angel investor. Um, we had Howard Lindzen as an angel investor. We had all these amazing angel investors um, in the round because he helped us get that first 40% done, right? Like, so everyone needs that helping hand. I, I say Techstars, we say Techstars is for life. So it doesn't end after those three months. The value that you have in Techstars is this network of 10,000 people who are rooting for you and cheering you on and want to see you succeed. And so years later, you know, we'd, we'd raise several rounds of capital uh, from first round capital and founder collective and, um, we're, we're, we're now at this point where we're raising another round and trying to do this partnership with Nationwide Insurance. And we told one of our investors that we'd met through Techstars what we were doing. We were having trouble to get Nationwide to, to move. And they were moving super fast for a, a big organization. But for us, it was, it was really slow, right? And of course, like any startup, we're starting to run out of money and we really need this partnership to go through. And, and he's like, oh, well, I know the president of Allstate. Uh, and so a week later, we were in the, the president of Allstate's meeting, looking around, being like, what the, hell, what the hell do we end up in the president of Allstate's like, office meeting with them? I mean, to be honest, I don't think they're terribly interested, but 
but you know, we, we were able to tell nationwide, Hey, we're meeting with Allstate. And all of a sudden they started moving and that deal got done and we partnered with them and didn't end up happening, but that was likely going to be the acquisition for us of, you know, they were going to partner with us and, and potentially acquire us. So I think of all these ways that Techstars infinitely helped us out just with our company. And again, then it's Techstars for life. So as after eight years of running this company, the, the floor fell out like from under us overnight. And we went from 40 people to two people within a year. And as we're you know talking about how we're kind of kind of shutting down the company and and figuring out next steps. One of our angel investors, David Cohen, the the founder of Techstars, said, Hey, what are you gonna do next? And after eight years, I was taking a break for sure. But I said, I don't know. He's like, Would you ever want to work at Techstars? And so, you know, a couple of years later I'm in LA and launched they're launching Techstars LA and I end up working and helping launch Techstars LA. So I kind of joked that uh I lost Techstars a bunch of money and they gave me a job. So I, I think it's just Literally everyone I know in this world, I can trace back, and at least in like my professional life, I can almost trace back to, to the people I met at Techstars. So it's just been a really powerful network for me of people who want to see me succeed both personally and professionally. That's Wow, that's a really incredible story. I saw a tweet from Elizabeth Yin that said that 80% you should focus on distribution and 20% everything else. I want to know what your thoughts are on that. I, I think she's entirely right. I learned this lesson pretty early when we were first starting the company, we were bootstrapped. So I, I, I had no real skills. I somehow finagled my way into a job as a freelance content writer for a site that was kind of like a pre Buzzfeed site. And, and I was no better than any of the other writers on the site. In fact, that's probably worse. They were all professional writers and I was some Yahoo who kind of conned my way into the job. And what I learned really quickly was they had something back then. If you probably don't remember, it was something called stumble upon. Twitter was just kind of starting to, to, to get big and people were starting to be influential on Twitter. But I realized they were doing something and they'd hired these people, these influencers who were influential on StumbleUpon and Twitter to promote some of the content pieces we were reading or writing. And I noticed this early and so all of a sudden I befriended all of them and, and all of a sudden they started promoting all of my pieces and all of my pieces were probably worse than anyone else's, honestly. Like they were fine. You know, some of them were pretty funny, but like for the most part, all the other writers were a lot smarter and better writers than I was. Mine kept blowing up and going viral and no one knew why. I never told them my secret, but it was because I'd figured out distribution before I'd figured out content. And so that was an early lesson for me that, you know, I think at least in, in what people are writing, like you know, people, it, it, it's hard for people to think on their own. And, and sometimes they need people to tell them what to think. And so I figured out distribution before content or before, you know, in this case, content was product. Um, I think is incredibly important. You know, with with Give Forward, we launched this product, crowdfunding, and and when we launched it, we it was novel, right? We launched it. It was us and Indiegogo and like three others that quickly faded. And this was kind of an, a novel idea. Not to say that it hadn't been you know been done for ten years before us in the nonprofit space, right? The original inspiration for me was just a, a crowdfunding page in the nonprofit space. So it was novel to take it to this new space. But five years later, after we launched, there was literally a thousand crowdfunding platforms out there, right? So anything that you're going to build is going to be replicated. We were building something that was technologically indistinguishable from anything else. So the winners in the space were going to be distribution. Like who is going to figure out a way to, you know, it was a winner take most space. Who's going to figure out a way to scale the most 
you know, the quickest. Um, and, and, and I think that's true of so much technology, especially consumer technology, where you're not often going to have a, a technological advantage over anyone else. Um, and if you haven't figured out and you haven't started to think about distribution very early in, in that life cycle of your company, then you're going to be in trouble and people are going to leapfrog you pretty quick. Yeah, that's an excellent example when it comes to distribution. I wanted to also talk to you about timing. How should entrepreneurs evaluate if this is the right time to start their company? Because of course, timing is the most critical. It's hard sometimes to know when it's the right time to build something. Unless you're like a McKinsey analyst and you've been looking at a space for a long time and then you're going to dive in from a very analytical standpoint and say, all the technology trends are, are aiming in the right direction to allow us to build this product now when it hasn't been successful in the past. Maybe that's a minority of people. I think the majority of people get into something for the same reason I did because you know they're, they're getting punched in the face by a problem and they're probably not looking at all the underlying technology that is kind of foundational on allowing them to build this product now when it may not have worked five years before that. Um, just looking at us, like I think we couldn't have predicted. So when we started this in 2008, we couldn't have predicted that Facebook was going to blow up. Like we could have seen that it was blowing up, but we, we didn't know. It went from like 200 million users to, you know, well over a billion users in, in a very short amount of time. Not only did that happen, but, but Twitter came along and, and really helped push Facebook in a different direction with their newsfeed. So all these things were coming along. So now Facebook is growing at exponential rate in terms of how many users it has, but it also changed the product around so that if you think back to Facebook a long, long, long time ago, people were sharing things once or twice a year. You had to go to their wall to see what they were sharing. And then the newsfeed changed everything because it, people started sharing exponentially more. And so those two exponential user growth at the time multiplied with exponential sharing growth was the back uh, that we all kind of jumped onto for, for all the crowdfunding platforms. We'd get 80% of our, our, of our traffic from Facebook um, and 80% of our revenue from Facebook. And it was all through this mechanism, mechanism that we piggybacked on Facebook. And, and yeah, we could have, we started to see this early. We started to see these trends early. We didn't see it when we started the company or before we started the company. We saw it once we were already building the company and we took advantage of it. So I think it's more, you know, I think what's more realistic is, is, is uh, that founders have their eyes open and start to see trends once they're in a company rather than really predicting the future of what is going to happen. For us, we got really lucky. The best thing I, I joke sometimes is the best thing that we ever did was we stayed alive for two years in order to catch the wave. Like we were early, you know, and then Kickstarter launches the next year and that helps out a ton in creating awareness into the space. And so we, we'd pitched first round capital in 2009, we pitched in 2010. And then finally in 2012, David Cohen made the introduction, which helped. We'd gone through Techstars, which helped. But also at the time, you know, we had more traction. We'd done millions of dollars in transactions at that time. But also we were starting to be on trend of like, oh, this is actually going to be a thing. And so timing, you know, timing helped a lot. I, I wish I could say that we, we predicted that. Um, maybe my co-founder, she was so much smarter than I am. Uh, maybe she did predict it a little bit more than me, but I think it's I think it's hard to predict those types of things. It's not only timing if it's the right trend at the right time, but it's also you know on the investment side as well, right? Do investors think that this is the right time? Totally. You can have a terrible business in a space that investors want to invest into, 
and and everyone's going to take a meeting um, if you have a decent team, or you can have a, a great team, a, a good business with solid growth in a space that investors are kind of cool on, and and you're just going to face headwinds. So it is fascinating how much is really outside of our control as founders, especially in the fundraising. It's you know it's so hard. You get you get rejected so much, and you don't know why. Sometimes you're like, I don't get it. My business is great, and and sometimes it's just a you're in a space that investors don't like right now. It trickles into like other industries as well. Like um, I used to come from the music business and I read an article about how when like grunge was really popular in the early 90s, like there's so many bad grunge bands that were signed by record labels just because that was the sound. And there was just so, it was just, they were just being on trend and wanted to still try to catch the wave. You talked about distribution and about how 80% you were customer acquisition, 80% was from Facebook. You know, if it is highly concentrated, like it was with, with you on Facebook, like what should founders be thinking about in order to not rely so much on one channel? Well, for us, so to be clear, it wasn't 80% of our customer acquisition, 80% of our revenue. So like people, we'd get our customers largely from paid search, SEO and press. Um, and, and, but they'd find the, the donors would find the fundraising page through Facebook. So 80% of our revenue and traffic came from, it was a kind of a two-sided marketplace came from Facebook. That said, we were entirely reliant on a couple of channels. And, and once we couldn't figure out how to scale to new channels, that was really what started to slow us down. And, and we saw, you know, sites like GoFundMe just kind of eclipse us, right? I will say that almost every company piggybacks on some platform that's growing quickly right now. Um, at least in consumer, like everyone, whether your that platform is is Google, whether it's Facebook, whether it's something, you know, something new, you you need you often need to ride that wave um, in order to see the type of hyper growth that you know some of these, you know, a unicorn company needs. But I, I will say, you know, at least, at least from my own experience, is live by the sword, die by the sword. Most companies will we'll sometimes be fearful of, you know, doing something that a large tech company can do. And in our case, uh, Facebook, ultimately, they weren't, they didn't care about what we were doing when we were small. And they didn't really care about what we were doing when we were big, but GoFundMe got big enough that I think they got in the space. And eventually Facebook, there was an algorithm change, then that killed us, like overnight killed us. Uh, they tried to recruit us to become product managers for their starting a social impact team at Facebook. And then a year later, they built the same product we built. And I think that's rare that that actually happens. But if you live by the sword, you're you kind of at risk of dying by that sword as well if you're entirely focused on one channel. So I wish we had really figured out other ways to diversify. It wasn't for a lack of effort on the customer acquisition side. We were constantly looking at new channels. Um, and I think, I think a good rule of thumb is go heavy into the channel that's working for you now and spend 75% of your time on the channel or two channels that are working for you now and 25% of your time figuring out what channel is going to be next. Cause it's never, those channels never last forever and everything, you know, wears out eventually and you need to figure out where am I going to get my next huge boost of growth from. So I, I kind of, as a rule of thumb, think 75, 25 constantly doing tests and looking for new channels that might work for you. I see decks from great companies that are growing, you know, 300% a year. And then they say they're doing all of these different channels. And it, that's also mind boggling to me as well. Cause most of the time your growth is going to come from a couple channels at a time that are doing really well. And so I, I, I definitely do like to see people focusing and doubling down on the things that are working for them as opposed to always just 
trying everything. You run a FinTech Accelerator at Techstars. Walk me through what are the requirements? What's your due diligence process? Are you global? Do you only look at American companies? Yeah, no, we, we are not just looking at American companies. Last year, 40% of our companies came from outside the US. We had a company from Mexico, a company from Canada. We had two companies from India. We'll likely have 40, 50% of the companies this year come from outside the US, especially with fintech and payments. Um, there's so much innovation happening outside the US and, and arguably more if you think of places like Africa and China, they're really just leapfrogging technology that we have in the United States because there's, there's fewer incumbents, there's fewer, there's less infrastructure. And so there's just opportunity to kind of leapfrog, you know, the, the kind of stuff that we're able to do here in the US. So um, we're looking globally. Uh, the things that we look for, uh, we're, we're investing at such an early stage. So the companies coming through the program um, have typically, you know, there's outliers, of course, right? I, I have a former employee who went through Techstars last year, and he'd already raised a Series A $10 million before going through Techstars. I'd say that's a bit of an outlier. Um, we, we certainly have tons of companies that have done that. But what, what's more typical is companies are coming through pre-seed or seed stage. They've raised anywhere from zero to maybe $3 million. Um, and they're looking to scale. Um, and, and so that's kind of the stage companies that are coming through the program. What we look for, and it varies from program to program. So other programs, you know, will care more about traction. I, I, I don't care very much about traction. I'm really looking deeply into teams and talent. And are these people that I think are going to do some world-changing things? And would I want to work for them? Are these people great? As I think it's so hard to run startups and do this successfully that the people who can inspire others and inspire me and inspire their teams and investors and everyone else that you just walk out of the room feeling like, holy crap, I can't stop thinking about this company or I'd maybe I should quit my job and just work for this, this, this founder. Those are the types of the founders you want to work with. Um, and so just trying everything possible to find, find people in that space. So, you know, I think anything at the seed stage or pre-seed stage, we're looking at a, a mix of founders. We're looking at a mix of, you know, product or idea and, and a mix of traction. I think traction can sometimes get your foot in the door because everyone's going to look at something with traction. Um, but it, it certainly doesn't sell it ever. It doesn't close the deal ever. And I think that's usually, you know, comes down to team. And of course you have to, you know, every single company in our program last year had some either a small pivot, you know, or a big pivot. And literally 10 out of 10 companies had had some type of pivot. And so you can't, focus too much on the idea because these companies change. But at the same time, you have to invest in companies, I think, that you can get excited about. Because if you're if you're only excited about the team, but you really hate the idea, it's hard to want to, you know, get involved and get engaged and, and dig in and think through stuff with them. Uh, talk to me a little bit about team. How do you, what are some steps that you take in order to, to analyze if this is the right team to tackle the problem? There's a number of things, both from individual components of, of, you know, the, the founders. So like, are they open-minded? Do they have a growth mindset? Are they thinking of like, are they listening to, to advice, but then also having their own opinions. You don't want people who are going to be too swayed by advice who are going to just, you know, go around in circles. You want people who have really strong opinions, but are open to changing and thinking through things. I think of course you want people who are passionate, like I said before, because that's hard, but I, I find that most people in the space are, it's hard to find people who aren't. So I think that's kind of table stakes. I, I really look for EQ. I, I think of EQ as the DNA of culture. And I think of culture, I think of 
if there's certain steps that we take to scale companies, right? If we're at the seed and pre-seed level, you're thinking about teams. At, at the A level, you know, you're really thinking probably about unit economics and have they found scalable growth channels to, to really bring, you know, scale this company up. And, and beyond that, you're probably looking at, is this a company that I can put money into and it's going to become a mega, a mega company and a, a unicorn? Is this something that's going to last for the next 20, 30 years? Because at that, you know, B, C, D level, there's fewer opportunities. So you're really putting a lot of money into, you know, a, a fewer bets and, and you have to have a lot of conviction. And I think at that level, it comes down to culture. If you have scalable growth channels, you have good union economics um, and you have a great product and done all those earlier things, then it comes down to, can you attract amazing talent, amazing people? Do you have an amazing culture that's going to be a force multiplier for you for the next 20, 30 years um, that's going to allow you to pivot and change your vision when, when the technology landscape changes? And so I think of EQ um, as, as really the DNA of building strong cultures that are going to you know, be world-changing companies. Does the founder listen to others? Do they listen more than they speak? I, I often watch for when founders are talking to each other, do they talk over each other? Are they, you know, are they respectful of each other? Do they finish each other's sentences? Are they respectful of everyone in the room? So I, I kind of, I think EQ is much more important, at least for me, than, than IQ, because I think a lot of people are smart. But once you've kind of built your product, that's really just the first 20% of it. And, and building a big company is really, you know, if you think of product as your first product, I think culture is your second product. And, and that's the, the part that's, you know, if you build out your product in the first couple of years, of course, you're going to iterate on it over time and you, you're never going to have a static product. But if you build out a good product over the first you know, couple of years, you know, in the next 20, 25 years, you're, you're, you're focusing a lot more on that second product than you are on that first product. And that's kind of the limiting factor for growing a big company. So I, I tend to look at, at founders and I love founders who are both confident and have a, a lot of humility at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's very well said. I don't think we've actually talked a, a lot about EQ. So um, that's, that's uh, I really appreciate you kind of walking me through a little bit of your uh, due diligence process and how you think about teams. What are some trends that you're focused on uh, that you that you're right now thinking about in relation to your um, accelerator when it comes to you know fintech and the future of payments and finance? Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll start by saying um, I'm not focused on trends in the sense that we early we invest at such an early stage that if I were to be focused on trends, then these things have already started to happen. I'm probably too late to the game because I'm investing, investing at the pre-seed and seed stage level, right? So if you're Series A or Series B investor, you're probably focusing a lot more on trends and figuring out who are the winners in this space and then putting money into them. Um, whereas I don't have the luxury of being able to do that. That said, there, there's some things that I think are interesting and fun and, and we're looking at. I think banking as a service is really interesting. So the idea that anyone um, whether you're a bank or it could be a consumer brand, in the future we'll be providing banking services for people. Um, I think that's really exciting. I, I have the same bank account with Bank of America since I was in college, not because I love Bank of America, but because, you know, because there's switching costs and I'm lazy and, and you, know, you, just, you just become accustomed to something. I think that's going to change a lot. Um, we're already starting to see it. And we're, we're starting to see things that allow people 
to through APIs and white labels to really anyone can become a bank. Anyone can offer banking services. And, and if, you, if that's the case, you're going to start banking with the brands that you like. Like, why don't I bank with Apple? Why don't I bank with Nike? Why don't I bank with Tesla or whatever it is? Why am I banking with Bank of America, who I hate? <laughs> right. And so I think I think that's a big opportunity. I'm excited about a lot of the stuff we're seeing in consumer lending and really lending to people who have been hard to lend to in the past you know, with thin credit histories um, and, and people who traditionally been overlooked. I think there's technology now that allows people to look at transactions, financial transactions uh, of consumers. And, and there's more that we can look at it through alternative credit and alternative scoring that is new within the last five years. That's going to open up capital to a lot of people who need it, who otherwise you know, were subject to predatory lending, to payday loans, things like that. I'm really excited about that space. Again, I come from social impact. Um, and and I, I really care about financial inclusion and, and bringing everyone into the digital economy and lifting everyone up. Um, so that's a big space for me. 40% of our companies last year were focused on financial inclusion. I imagine a, a number of them will be focused on financial inclusion again this year. But I think that's a really exciting. There's a lot of stuff that's going on here. It's interesting in North America and also Latin America in the space. And then, I mean, there's some also some stuff that that's exciting that's not sexy, like Reg tech, which I think is a new word as of, I don't know, a number of years ago, but, but really uh, compliance tech, right? Like there's so many new rules, regulations, compliance that, and, and fintech is such a regulated industry, yet this space is so antiquated where, you know, you have lawyers who are getting paid a lot of money. Every time people have to make a payment, they have to go through a process called KYC, know your customer, and anti-money laundering regulations. So you're not sending money to, to bad actors and terrorists and and drug traffickers and, and everyone has to check that and and so many institutions today do this manually and and paying compliance officers and lawyers and you know, imagine paying a lawyer to check every time you have to make a payment it's not a a very smart system so we're starting to see just better tools in this space and we're i think we're going to continue to see like the space getting smarter uh, so what's what's one company in your in your most recent cohort that you're uh, particularly excited about? I know I spoke to um, Anna Barber and you know Eamon, and you know I know that you don't want to single out one company in in, in a particular, but if you had to choose just one example, I'd love just to hear about it. Sure, I'll I'll give you the company that I spoke last. You know, I spoke on the phone to just you know, a couple hours ago. So, so I'm not picking favorites, but a company called Kuru, which I'm incredibly excited about. And, and again, they're kind of in that lending space, but uh, what they're helping companies do is they will help. So 75% of, of um, consumers right now get rejected on their loans and banks and lenders and online lenders, they hate, hate this because they're rejecting 75% of applicants and they can't monetize on those 75% of applicants. So what these guys have done is they were college students who, because they didn't have great credit histories, because they didn't know how to build up their credit, because no one had told them how to do that, they had the ability to pay for off-campus housing, but they couldn't get it. And so they got rejected from every off-campus housing possible. So kind of like I was talking about earlier, they were, they were entrepreneurs not by choice. They dropped out of college because they kept getting punched in the face with this problem. And they became credit counselors and they helped understand why, how credit scores work and how to up your credit. And they've built a platform now um, that takes in people's financial transactions and they can understand 
what it is that they're doing right and what it is they're doing wrong in terms of building credit. And they'll white label this service for banks and online lenders. And what, what, what happens is uh, instead of getting rejected and that lender losing that customer, what will happen now is through Kuru, that lender will say, hey, we can't accept you right now, but we're going to send you to Kuru and Kuru is going to work with you. And in three months time, you know, come back here and, and we'll make this loan for you, whether that's any type of loan or credit product could be a credit card. And so it's a win-win situation because lenders are, love it because they're, they're able to originate more loans and that's how they make money. And consumers love it because they're not getting rejected anymore. So I'm really excited about this company. Um, they're, they're, they're doing great. They've, they're just fun to work with too. They're all the, all those things I said earlier about the types of founders you really want to be around. Um, they have all those qualities. So uh, that's one company I'm really excited about right now. Thank you so much for sharing. What's one thing that you would change about venture capital? This is an easy question. And, I, and, and you've probably heard this answer a zillion times, but I, I said it earlier and, and venture capital is no different, but maybe even worse in some other spaces. You know, it's an insider outsider club and it's, it's really heavily dominated you know, by white males and, you know, that things are changing, but they're changing slowly. So, um, I was just at the SoGal female pitch competition in San Francisco this past weekend and it was incredible. And I was, it was funny cause I think I was like the one token white male out of like 50 judges and speakers and got to participate and just felt honored to, to, to be there. Um, and it was all female founders and it was all female investors. And I think that's, you know, that's the future. I think looking into underrepresented founders more, um, 50% of our CEOs last year in our class were underrepresented founders, either black, Latinx or female. And, and I think there's just a huge missing opportunity that we're all missing if we're not investing in people that, you know, don't always look like us, you know, and I say us, I mean, traditionally white male investors. And so I'd love to see that change of pushed and made some efforts at Techstars, um, which I'm really proud of, to to create a more diverse, inclusive culture for our companies, and and so that's just a big area for me. And I, I saw it personally as all the companies I started were with women, and my last company, Give Forward, was with she was uh, Latinx, and you just saw how how much more how many more hurdles people face when they didn't fit the mold, basically, and and you know I think that's garbage, truthfully, and and I'd like to see see that change both from the, the, the founder side and also obviously from the investor side. Yeah, no, I know. I completely agree with you. Yeah. And it's something that, that we, cer- we we certainly have talked about on the, on the show before. And it's great to have more, I think, more conversations about it. What's what's one book that inspired you professionally and one book that inspired you personally? Uh, professionally, the book called Hug Your Customers, which was a book I read early on. It was about customer service and our, our business at Give Forward was a customer service business. We, our mantra was create unexpected joy. We gave people $500 a year, employees $500 a year to create, create like little magical moments for our customers. Um, and our customers were, were people who were raising money for their loved ones out of pocket medical expenses. So oftentimes people felt like they were at the, at the lowest point in their lives, especially the, the person who was sick and might have cancer. And so we would do little things to send them gift boxes and funny little cards and just do things to cheer them up almost um almost like mini like make a wish right of 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 just little things to make people's day just a tiny bit brighter and and that was such you know an amazing thing for our team and um and just that culture it was that's just an example of it but 
it was a customer service business. Half our team was customer service, called them fundraising coaches. Um, and, and truthfully, venture is a customer service business. Um, that's all venture really is, is, you know, you're doing customer service and you're serving your founders. And, and I think that book definitely informed the way I think and try to, you know, serve both our, our customers as a founder and really our, our, our team members as a, you know, as running a company and now the founders that I work with as an investor. There's a book called The Arc of Justice that I read that was incredibly moving to me. And uh, it happened around uh, when Donald Sterling was, was getting kicked out of the NBA. Um, and I started, and I hadn't understood anything around housing discrimination at the time and the history of housing discrimination we'd had in this country. And it was very eye-opening for me in everything from redlining to all the different things that, that kept uh, minorities out from owning houses, systemic racism institutionalized into our federal laws and regulations that kept people out from uh, amassing wealth. And, and, and I read this book and it kind of set something off in me of just, uh, you know, I went through law school and have a strong sense of justice. And it was just eye-opening in the sense that I had no idea that this existed. So it kind of set me off on a kick over the next, I don't know how many years, but um, really thinking about systems as a whole and uh, what's fair, what's unfair and, and how, you know, certain things are just insider outsider as kind of alluded to before um, and, and, and trying to create more just and equitable systems, whether that's in tech or, or really just anywhere. Both books sound really, really amazing. Um, I'll certainly have to check them out. And um, I'm really glad that you shared these, uh, th- these books because, um, I, because both of these uh, haven't been brought up before on the show. What's one piece of advice that you have for founders? Yeah, and I'll, I'll give a piece of advice that um, that mentor that I mentioned before, that guy who helped create the internet browser, his name is Tim Kraskoff. He gave me and my co-founder, Desiree Vargas Wrigley, he gave us a piece of advice that has always stuck with me. And he said to us, when times are good, don't give yourself too much of a pat on the back. And when times are bad, don't blame yourself too much. And I think that's true for founders, because as founders, we tend to believe that our success and our failure has everything to do with us. And we've talked about in this episode already, right? (laughs) So much of it has to do with luck, timing, privilege, all of these things that are outside of our control. And at the time when he said that to us, we were, you know, the darling of Chicago. We kept winning all these startup awards and like we're growing 300% a year and, and, you know, and it was, I didn't take note too much at that time, you know, because I, I, I probably thought all of our success was due to us. And then when the, the rug gets swept out from under us, when overnight we lost 25% of our revenue and within a year went from 40 people to two people and saw Facebook build the same product. And I knew, you know, that was, that was to no fault of our own, besides maybe not diversifying a little bit more, that... And that was really hard. And I think that information, that 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 piece of knowledge that he shared with us really hit home a lot harder then, you know, because it's so easy to just blame yourself uh, when you see all, everything you'd built for eight years disappear. Um, but I think it's important to remember that 
you know, whether you're successful or unsuccessful, you only control so much. Yeah, I think, wow, I think that's a great piece of advice, you know, try to remain, you know, even keeled uh, in the good times and the bad times. Well, Ethan, thank you so much for coming onto the show. I really appreciate your time and, and, and the conversation. Yeah, I had a blast. Thank you so much for having me. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure having Ethan on the show, and I really appreciate him taking the time and answering all my questions. If you would like to keep up to date with Ethan, you can do at Ethan Austin on Twitter. If you are a founder and working on something innovative, have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. And thanks again for listening, folks. Until next time.